stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Gary Steingart is the author of three novels. His debut, The Russian Debutante's Handbook, was a New York Times notable book, one of The Guardian's best debuts of the year, and the winner of the National Jewish Book Award. His second novel, Absurdistan, follows the adventures of Misha Weinberg, the 325-pound son of the 1,238th richest man in Russia, was a best book of the year in the New York Times, Time Magazine, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, and San Francisco Chronicle. And his last novel, Super Sad True Love Story, is a romance set in a post-literate dystopian America and gave Steingart the reputation as a modern-day Nostradamus for predicting advances in technology, geopolitics, and the economy. His prodigious blurbing of other people's books has led to a website of his collected blurbs, a live reading, and the blurb documentary narrated by Jonathan Ames. Steingart is also in the vanguard of video book trailers, the New Yorker calling him the leading book trailer auteur of our time, the latest starring James Franco as his boyfriend and Jonathan Franzen as a psychoanalyst. And Gary Steingart is here to talk about the new book that inspired this trailer, his best book to date in my mind, Little Failure, a Memoir. Welcome to Between the Covers, Gary Steingart. Thank you So you've written nonfiction before. Yes. And... I, at least I know I'm familiar with your nonfiction in Travel and Leisure yeah. and and other places in New York Times. But this is your first book-length nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And I was curious if, if this is a, um, something that has been percolating for a long time in your mind mm-hmm. is something you wanted to do, or were there particular life events that uh-huh. really shunted you in this direction? Well, I've been writing nonfiction for a while. Um, sort of in between writing novels, I would do a lot of travel essays. I've been all over the world. Uh, but I would also do sort of little personal essays for The New Yorker about, for example, you know, the time when we went to – when all I wanted as a kid was to have a 69-cent McDonald's hamburger. And my parents took me to a hamburger and uh, – took me to McDonald's on a trip to uh, Florida and they wouldn't allow me to buy one. They brought their own beet salad and all we did was use the McDonald's napkins and straws. Um, so I did little essays like that. Um, and I thought, hey, you know, I'll just put them together into a little collection – but as I started reading them, I thought there's some kind of connective tissue that's missing, and there's stuff that's really much more painful that I need to sort of take a stab at. Uh, and and that's where it began, the sort of idea to write it really from beginning to end in a kind of very linear fashion. You know, most people like to do some postmodern tricks with jumping around in time and space, and it could be beautiful. I love that. But I thought, you know, 
living my life has been sort of internally jumping around in time and space. So why not just do a very linear kind of version of it and hook up all these different essays, but write out a whole new, I mean, 80% of the book is just new material that came up as a reaction almost to those essays. There are a lot of autobiographical elements to your fiction. Uh, Did you find that um, writing pure nonfiction presented particular challenges that the the fiction didn't. Well, you know, I write satire for the most part. So, I mean, I think it's more than satire, but but it's there's a kind of the humor presents a very nice safety net because if things go, if things get too deep, you can always pull back on the humor, and uh, I mean, you can always count on the humor to sort of save the day. Here, there is humor. I don't want to make this out to sound like it's it's it's, it's very you know it's a serious memoir, but at the same time, you have to lead with the with the, with the unfortunate incidents uh, that comprised my life, you know, from uh, being born to a failing superpower to the Soviet Union to moving to another failing superpower, the U.S., you know. Boy, I seem to, every superpower I seem to go to seems to fail pretty quickly. Um, Do you think you're the common denominator? I think I'm the common denominator. I mean, I I remember landing in Beijing and they're like, "Uh uh-oh, here we (laughs) we go again, you know. So, um, well, how was it? You in the book you describe going back and reading your entire uh, collection of of fiction. Mm-hmm. What was that experience like? Did you find that you still liked your early writing? You know, I know, like when you mm-hmm. read about Saul Bellow and he goes back to some of his early mm-hmm. stuff, he's like, "I wish I could edit it." <laughs> so, did you did you have any sort of experience that was? <laughs> Yeah, surprising. Well, well, you know, first of all, I was shocked by just how much autobiographical material had seeped into these books. I had no idea, you know. I, I mean, all three books feature a kind of post-Soviet Jewish nebbish. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't realize that I was really mining my my work, my life that much for the for the fiction. Um, I would edit my first book. It's 450 pages long. I, I would definitely cut out 70, 80 pages of that. I was in my late 20s when I wrote that, and, you know, one doesn't really hold back at that point. One sort of looks in the mirror and just writes and writes and writes. But writing this memoir also kind of enables me to, I mean, in a way, I've given away the store here. There's almost nothing nothing left for me to mine for my life. Uh, one of the first interviews I had was with Francine Prose for Interview Magazine, and she said, uh, after reading this book, I know you better than I know my husband at 20 years, you know. <laughs> That's great. That's funny. Um, and, and now allows me after this to write about other things as well. Yeah. One of the things I really loved in Little Failure was you tracking your interest in writing. Right. And, you know, Russian Debutant's Handbook's your first published book, but it was back when you were five when you started yes. writing your first book. And I love that dynamic you describe with your grandmother, right. with her giving you a piece of cheese for every page finished and giving you a sandwich for every chapter finished. Yes, Can yes. you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, she, she, she was a journalist for Evening Leningrad, a, a far better paper than Morning Leningrad, and uh, she wanted me very much to be a writer. You know, I was suffering from asthma, so I could barely leave the house. So um, she said, write a book. And my topic was Lenin because there was a huge statue of Lenin right outside. So... In the book, Lenin meets a magical goose, and together they invade Finland and create a socialist revolution there. You know, and I was obsessed with the Bolshevik versus Menshevik uh, dynamic because I was reading a book about the Civil War in Russia. You know, five-year-old kids are, are given you know, hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred page books about the Civil War to read. So. I made the goose a Menshevik, and, and Lenin and the goose had it out, and then Lenin eats the goose for ideological reasons. So, I mean, and that kind of presages the fact that politics was such a major part of everything I'd written since. Um, I grew up where politics was life and death, and, and that's just how it continued. 
I loved how Lenin was a superhero to you and also a superhero in the book, but also had some of your weaknesses. He had I asthma. had yeah. the asthma, right? Yeah, I gave, I gave Lenin asthma. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. But he was, I mean, talk about a superhero. I mean, he was, you know, he was, this, this was the largest statue of Lenin in Leningrad, so you can only imagine how huge he was. This big, bald guy, his ha- hand was outstretched. He looked like he was about to dance. We called him the Latin Lenin because he looked like he was going to rumba or something. Uh, and that was, um, you know, when I could, when I wasn't sick, I'd, I'd get outside and hug his pedestal. He was that important to me. Do you have any weird writing food rituals based on yeah. what happened with your grandmother and the cheese and the sandwiches? <laughs> well, Random House still pays me in cheese. So they still the, pay the you in cheese? Yeah, just Excellent. giant wheels of cheese get rolled into my apartment. Oh, that must be very interesting. That's great. Yeah, yeah. the royalties are spectacular, very tasty. <laughs> and what are, the, uh, what are some of the other pre-Russian debutante handbook book attempts? Right. So when <laughs> I started writing in English when I was, I think, about 11 years old. So I would write science fiction novels for Hebrew school. I was really hated in Hebrew school because it was, uh, I was a Russian. This was Ronald Reagan's Evil Empire speech and all those movies, Red Dawn, Red Gerbil, Red Hamster. It was just red all around. So I started writing these science fiction novels. I mean, I guess uh, we didn't really have a TV set, but somehow I caught glimpses of the bionic woman and the $6 million man who I thought was very, very expensive because we were very poor. $6 million sounded like a lot for one man. Um, so I wrote, um, you know, I wrote books like Invasion from Outer Space and The Challenge and Bionic Friends. And and, and um, one of the substitute teachers at Hebrew school was very sweet and very smart. And she allowed me to, to take over the, the end of the English periods and just to read my books to everyone. And I started making friends because of that, nerdish friends, of course, but friends nonetheless, because the kids enjoyed this work. Um, it was very sweet of them to do so. And then I, I sort of delved into satire. That was the next step. And you know, there was a Hebrew school, so there was a lot of Talmud and Torah and all this stuff that kids, you know, at 11 and 12 really aren't that into. So I wrote my own version of the, the Jewish Torah called the Gonorrah, where, you know, Exodus became Sexodus, and it was all... Brooke Shields was a major part of it because she was so hot. She was almost like the, the Sarah figure in the Bible. She gave birth to, to a nation. Um, and that was – and then that won me even more friends. So I went from being this kind of unclubbable fruitcake Russian to sort of, a, you know, a tolerated eccentric. And that's a, that's a step up in elementary school. Oh, that's really interesting. Tell us about the the um, situation for Jews in Russia in the seventies prior to you you coming over. I know you were part of a deal, yeah. essentially between Carter and, and Brezhnev, right, yeah. and, and I, I don't think a lot of people are that familiar with. Yeah, it was a, well. First of all, there was a lot of American Jews were agitating for the release of the Soviet Jews. The Soviet Jews were trying to get out for a very long time. Uh, the Soviet Union did not want to let them go. Many of them, including, including my parents, were quite educated and informed. You know, the economy was always a disaster, but <laughs> you needed all the engineers you could get your hands on. Um, so the, the deal was sort of these grain, a grain Jew deal, which was the exchange of, of – because <laughs> the Soviet Union had this, these horrible uh, wheat harvests. So it was grain exchanged for Jews. So I was worth, you know, 300 loaves of bread and a croissant or something like that. We were all traded for, for grain and a little bit of high technology. So And you could use the cheese that you get from yeah. Adam House with that <laughs> you bread. Could, you could make a nice grilled cheese sandwich out of, out of my whole life at that point. Um, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in, in the Soviet Union. And, and plus the whole place just, just was a disaster. And my mother made a very important and, and a choice that I'm very thankful for, which is that she – you know, she sacrificed. Um, her mother was dying at this point. Was the one that I that commissioned the, the cheese novels from me, and she was starting to suffer from vascular dementia. And and 
she left her with her sisters, and that was a huge choice. And just to make sure that I was able to grow up in America, that I wouldn't have to go to the Red Army and do all the other stuff that would prove lethal to a small asthmatic boy like myself. Well, it was really, in reading the book, I was really curious to know how a Soviet Jew coming in the 70s would be received by the Jewish community in America, particularly because a lot of Jews many generations back come from the Ukraine and Belarus like your family originally did. But um, it was fascinating to see how you you were put in Hebrew school and then you were tormented and beat up, not because you were Jewish, but because you were Russian (laughs) during the Reagan era. That was sort of the funny thing, yeah. I mean, it was was very – it was a mixed bag in the sense that, hey, they got us out to begin with. Um, They were incredibly nice to my parents, for example – my father got a job uh, as an engineer, which was very rare because, you know, a lot of Russians ended up driving taxis or whatnot. But kids will be kids, and kids are cruel, and, you know, you show up to school, and they were fairly wealthy middle and upper middle class kids. And, you know, I showed up in a giant fur hat from Russia and smelling like some kind of woodland animal, and, you know, that's not going to win you any friends. I didn't speak any English. I mean, it was one thing after another. So, you know, there it goes. I mean, I, I speak often to a lot of ki- a lot of uh, people of my generation at these readings, and they come up, and some of them say, you know, look, I went to a Hebrew school, and it was pure hell, but then I transferred out to some multicultural school in San Francisco or whatever, where everyone was some kind of immigrant, and things were fine, you know. And, and for me, that happened sort of in, um, in high school when I went to Stuyvesant High School, which is this holding pen for multinational nerds in, in Manhattan, where everyone was from China or India or Korea or Russia, and, and, and that felt a, a lot more normal to me. In case you just tuned in, we're, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to Gary Steingart about his new memoir, Little Failure. W- one of the more painfully comic and purely painful parts of the book is, is the description of your circumcision yeah. at eight years old. And I was, that actually raised questions for me of what was Jewish life like in the Soviet Union in the 70s that you were getting circumcised when you came to America, too? Is right. there, was, was, I think nobody got circumcised. No one got circumcised. No one got circumcised. You, you know, my father was kind of nutty in the sense that he actually went to synagogue demonstrations on high holidays and shouted, you know, we are Jews, and very few people were brave enough to do that. Uh, but with me, they wanted to play it safe, certainly no circumcision. Um, already the passport, which had a line for ethnicity, labeled me as Jew in very big letters. So, you know, there was a lot of uh, – nobody wanted to flaunt something that, that in 1979 the Soviet Union – you know, my mother is half Jewish. And, and in the book, I say she, she looked half, too Jewish by half, you know, because people could sort of even sense that on the street, that people knew each other's sort of Jewish mixture from 500 meters away. You could say, ah, that guy's three-quarters Jewish, you know. So it was uh, – getting out was, for, for that reason alone, worth it, but also because the Soviet Union was in a real economic tailspin um, that would end up in the 90s, early 90s. The Yeltsin era is just, you know, the country became really a third-world country. Hmm. Well, you've, you've said in previous interviews that you're wary of – nationalisms and of and also of ethnic pride yeah. and i wondered if part of that was that experience of growing up a soviet patriot mm-hmm. until you were 7 and mm-hmm. and really um yeah. buying into the national narrative yeah. and then coming to the united states and having your parents want you to all of a sudden be pro reagan and and right. conservative which which right must have really undermined any sense of, of reliability around around these. Yeah. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, you grow up in a society where everyone is supposed to worship Lenin. I mean, I was too young to figure out that, that there was an undercurrent of, of hatred there, too. And then, you know, then you end up in America and like most uh, 
post-Soviet uh, immigrants and also a lot of other immigrants from Cuba, other communist countries, you became quite conservative. I mean, it's not – you can't generalize, say everyone's like that, but certainly the vast majority of – of Russian Jews were uh, – my parents' generation were very conservative. Um, even of my generation, it sometimes is interesting to see that it's taking a while for that usual drift, you know, from from conservatism to, to a more progressive kind of mentality. And, and, and along the line of distrusting nationalisms, you do this really great thing in Little Failure where you describe – the way Pushkin is drained out of the Russian language and these slogans that are that you see as a kid in the in the train station, but you also do a similar thing with America, I think, in Super Sad True Love Story about the ways uh, radical consumer capitalism deforms language in the United right. States. Right. You know these these big these are not just societies; these are sort of just um, ideologies that are floating through the world. Uh, American turbo capitalism, um, the Soviet Union's idea of, of of what socialism looked like. They were this was a fight to the death between ideals, and I was exposed to one, and then I was exposed to the other, and. Being the believing kid that I was, I went I went whole hog for for, for both of them, you know, one at one one in Russia and the, the other in, in America. So, you know, and looking back, it's it's that's the sort of evolution I guess I had, and, and being a writer as part of that is. And satire to me is sort of you know what satire is. It's 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 somebody who's actually a romantic who who realizes that the ideals that she or he believes in don't really hold water, and and that there's a sadness to that, which leads to a kind of rage, which then leads to the humor, which is which is what the satire is. I, I interviewed earlier this week one of your friends and, and teachers, Chang Ray Lee. Oh, I love him. And he, he said that all immigrant fiction is dystopian yeah, fiction, just right. not dystopian for the people reading yeah. it necessarily. Yeah. No, of course. Of course. It's it's about – also remember that you know, Chang Ray, my, who was my mentor, uh, um, he came from Korea, which is a country that – is doing wonderfully now, uh, one of the rising sort of nations of Asia. But the world that Chang Rei's parents grew up in was, was one that was a complete dystopia. When, when North and South Korea fractured the Civil War, the deaths of, of hundreds of thousands of millions of people, um, even today, North Korea is a dystopia. So we come, we come from places where, you know, it's, it's dystopia with a capital D. It's not just our, us using our imagination. It's, it's us basically dipping into our, our heritage to come up with this stuff. And definitely reading parts of Little Failure, they from the outside, it, they feel like science fiction. Or I imagine they must have felt like science fiction to you, like the transition or the or in transit from the Soviet Union to America when you're in Vienna. Right. And you're you're seeing all sorts of crazy things that you've never seen before. Can can you can you talk about that hallucinatory yeah, experience sure, sure. when well, you were dropped off in Vienna briefly? Well even Vienna well, first of all, Vienna was two things. It was Seeing bananas in the wintertime, which never would have happened in the Soviet Union, and it was, you know, so there I was dying of asthma in Russia, and you know the the uh, ambulance would come to pick me up every couple of weeks, take me to the hospital because there were no steroid inhalers. This very temp- simple technology just didn't exist. Um, so we got to Vienna. We went to a doctor, and he took out. He said, "Well, this is what we use here. It's a steroid inhaler." And I sucked on that inhaler, and <laughs> holy cow, all of a sudden I could breathe. I mean, it's not even a talk about metaphor. You know, you, you leave the Soviet Union, all of a sudden you can breathe. Um, and it's very sweet. I was just giving a reading, uh, and somebody showed up, and, and they asked me to sign their asthma inhaler. <laughs> I actually started. saw that picture that you posted. Yeah, I posted that. on Facebook. That was great. Uh, so I thought that was very sweet. But yeah, that was – and then landing here was even more so. Landing in the States, you know, you, you land at JFK. 
the international terminal, the Pan Am terminal, which was recently demolished for reasons I can never understand. But it looked like a flying saucer. It was this saucer-shaped building. And I thought, my God, this is not just landing in a different country. It's landing on a different planet. You know, The Chevrolet Corvette, that's a, that's a spaceship right there. You know, We got into a car, and we never had overpasses in Leningrad. And all of a sudden, we were in the air. And, and the Earth was a, we were in a car, but we were sort of flying through the air. And you look down, and you see all these like little houses with Backyards and and it takes so long to comprehend that, that you know that it's not nineteen families living in there as there would be in Russia. It's it's just one family. You know, it, it was it was it was all insane. Mm. Will you read a, a piece from Little Failure for us? Sure, I would love to. Uh, so we were talking about politics recently, and as I said, I was. Like most Soviet immigrants, quite conservative. Uh, at age 11, I was already subscribing to a, this is kind of embarrassing, a little magazine called The National Review. You know, William F. Buckley Jr., the editor, Margaret Thatcher on the cover, on every cover. Um, and at age 11, I was even welcome to the NRA. They sent me a, a welcome package and, a, and my own membership card, you know. So this is what happened uh, when I showed up at Stuyvesant High School and I uh, worked in, oh God, George H.W. Bush's uh, election campaign in 1988. So I'll read you that section. On election day 1988, I come to the Marriott Marquis Ballroom thinking this is the day, the day I will finally get laid. I have volunteered for George Bush Sr.'s scorched earth election presidential campaign against the hapless Michael Dukakis, laughing along with Bush's racist, hysterical Willie Horton commercials and all they imply about the liberal Massachusetts Greek. Compassion, after all, is a virtue only rich Americans can afford. Tolerance the purview of slick Manhattanites who already have everything I want. I am invited to attend what is sure to be a Republican victory party at the Marriott Marquis, the ugly slab of a building near Times Square. The invitation to the party features a scornful cartoon of the bigger Dukakis sticking his head out of an A1 Abrams tank, the most unfortunate photo op of his campaign, and I expect an evening of arrogant crowing, of being pressed to the bosom of my fellow conservatives while dancing a Protestant horror over the grave of American liberalism." Yes, tonight is a special night. It is the night I am to meet a Republican girl from a clean white home. Her name will be Jane, Jane Carruthers, let's say. Hi, Jane. I'm Gary Steingart from Little Neck. My family owns a colonial worth $280,000. I'm the brains behind a Commodore 64 program called the Family Real Estate Transaction Calculator. I go to Stuyvesant High School where my grades aren't so great, but I hope to get into the Honors College at the University of Michigan. I guess tonight it's going to be curtains for the governor of Taxachusetts. <laughs> I enter the ballroom, a dark gap-toothed immigrant wearing sweat socks and brown penny loafers in my special and only suit, a highly flammable polyester number. I navigate the room filled with sparkling Anglo-Americans clutching single malts without a word said in my direction, without a pair of happy blue eyes reflecting the gray sheen of the crisp nylon tie I'd picked up for $2 from a Broadway vendor. As George Herbert Walker Bush racks up state after state on the big screen above us as cheers and laughter circulate around the massively hideous ballroom. I stand alone in a corner, biting down on my plastic cup filled with ginger ale and swatting the colorful balloons that seem to have an affinity for my static-inducing polyester until a pair of teenage blonde lovelies, the girls I've been waiting for all my life, finally approach with needy smiles on their faces, one of them beckoning for me to come hither with her hand. I'm so excited. I somehow fail to see myself for what I am, a short teenage boy born to a failing country, trapped inside a shiny gunmetal jacket, carrying about a mop of the darkest hair in the room, darker even than Michael Dukakis's Hellenic do. 
Which one will be my Jane? Which one will trace the W of my weak chin with her pewter fingers? Which one will take me on her boat and introduce me to the millionaire and his wife? You know something, Daddy? Gary survived communism just so he could join the GOP. I think that's very courageous, son. Would you like to throw the old pigskin around with me and Jack Kemp after cocktails? Just leave your topsiders in the mudroom. Hey, one of the lovelies says. Me, debonair, unconcerned. Hey, so I'll have a rum and coke, just a splash of ice and a lime. Mandy, you said no ice, right? She'll have a diet coke, lime, no ice. I have been mistaken for the waiter. And the next day, I'm, I'm a Democrat, you know. <laughs> Could have ended up in the Tea Party if things had just uh, Michael Michael Dukakis's Hellenic Do. That sounds like a great name for a future band, yes. I think. Michael Dukakis's Hellenic Do. <laughs> in case you just tuned in, we're talking to Gary Steingart about his new memoir, Little Failure. So, Gary, tell us about the title, mm-hmm. Little Failure. Little Failure. Well, that was my mother's nickname for me uh, in my 20s. Um, I went to Oberlin College. Um, and which was expensive, still is quite expensive, and uh, we were not a wealthy family. So my parents, rightfully, like all immigrant families, really did think that after college I had to go. Wasn't smart enough for med school, they said, but, you know, law school, go to law school, that's that's the thing. So in my early 20s, I sort of came out to my parents after Oberlin said, look, worked for a year as a paralegal, that wasn't good for anybody involved. You know, I'm actually, I'm a writer, I, I, I want to be a writer. Didn't, didn't land well with, with my parents. And at one point, I was living on the Lower East Side. This is before it was gentrified. Uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan in an apartment with maybe 100 square feet. Uh, water bugs so big, you could sort of ride them across the room. Uh, my mother came to take a look at it and said, oh, you are a little failure, aren't you? And she used the, she coined her own term, which, which was failure chica, which was a combination of the English word failure. And uh, the chica is a diminutive. So she kind of very very brilliantly combined this uh, Russian-English word, and that became the title of the book. So. Yeah, and the, the name Little Failure is just one of maybe hundreds of names that you've had through your life. Yes, yes. So uh, I was very sick. My dad used to call me snotty because I was always, you know, I was always filled with snot. Um, at school, for in Hebrew school, I was Gary Gnu Third, based on a, the combination of a character from a children's um, show called The Great Space Coaster and, and William Horton, what's his name? Thurwell the third the, the, on Gilligan's Island, oh, the, yeah. the millionaire. Um, God, I should start blanking on his name. It's too bad the professor just died yesterday. Very I sad. saw that. Yeah, he was, yeah. I used to love that guy. Um, so that was one name. Then there was in college, um, because even at Oberlin, I somehow managed to consume more marijuana than everyone else, um, I was called Scary Gary, <laughs> which is kind of a funny, funny nickname. People would say, oh, my God, this party's really gotten started. Even Scary Gary's here. Um, well, if you think about the the sort of dual experience of of being an immigrant, of both belonging and not belonging in two places at the same time, here it feels much more um, – uh, varied instead of two personalities, it's like you have right. multiple personalities. Right. Right. But but a common a common one for immigrants is not necessarily having or keeping the name that they they had before. Right. Uh, tell right. tell us a little bit about the choice not to keep your your given name. Well, you know, I had enough problems already being the the red gerbil in Hebrew school. So um, we I started out with Igor was my name or Igor, but Igor, as we know, is Frankenstein's assistant. So we switched the letters around. We got Gory. That didn't sound so great. Um, so we flipped the O to an A. All Russians loved Gary Cooper. 
and hence I became Gary. And my real name wasn't even Steingart, it was Steinhorn, which means Stonehorn. So my real name was Igor Stonehorn, which is sort of a Bavarian porn star's name, you know. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about your portrayal of your, your parents. I, how difficult was that? I, I would imagine that would have been extremely difficult given – you know, obviously the, the, the potentially abusive ways, the, the names that they gave you. But you did this incredible job in Little Failure, in my opinion, of, of both showing your, the, your pain, your rage, and also creating space for us to have empathy for yeah. your parents at the same time. I was extremely impressed with the comedy and tragedy and poignancy mm-hmm. of those two put together. Well, thank you. I mean... When I started writing this, sort of the emotion that I was working off, I mean, there was a reason why I was scary, Gary. There was, there was quite a lot of uh, trying to tamp down the emotions with every single uh, substance available. Um, when I started writing this memoir, the overall emotions had stopped being the sort of the rage and the hurt of being their son, but became more sympathy, empathy, and, and really sorrow. You know, the more I, I found out about their lives, the sadder I got. You know, this was... These were difficult lives. Uh, my father's first memory is his finding out his own father was killed when he was a tiny little kid in the war in World War II, being evacuated from Leningrad, the Germans strafing the train that was evacuating them and them having to dive under the train for cover, um, his best friend dying in, you know, when they were uh, taken out of Leningrad, possibly of starvation, three or four years old, um, his cousin jumping out of a window because she was pursued by rats because the rats were also starving and trying to eat anything alive. And then after the war, him under the table, the kitchen table, crying and singing opera. He loved opera. And, and he um, dreaming of his real father, hoping, wishing he could go back in time and kill Hitler so that his father wouldn't die. And then inheriting a horrifying stepfather who – a lot of violence, a lot of ugliness. And, and, and that was his life, you know. And, and, and that's the – that's the inheritance in some ways. That and, and, and what do you expect? You know, well, they did the best they could with, with what they had. Yeah, was, that was one of the actually the most moving parts of the book for me was you had just finished uh, describing a scene where your your father seemed really horrible. And then you you jumped to here are my father's first four memories. Yeah. And it was it was really intense and really um, shifted the way you viewed the rest of the book, yeah. even when you saw your your father is extremely difficult. Yes. You still always had those four memories as a reader haunting everything that you read yeah. after that. Well, that's that. Thank you. That's that, certainly the hope that that you know. These are complicated people, uh, more complex than anyone I've ever encountered. Really, you know, because the level of of the the, the level of both. <laughs> their inability to sort of gate these thoughts, you know, as many immigrants do. You know, I have, I have friends from from a friend from India who's a brilliant writer, and his mother was likes to spit on the ground and say, "You are not worth the spit on this ground," you know. And and, and this is this man went to every Ivy League school imaginable, got professional degrees. I mean, he did everything possible, but it's never it's not enough, you know, because the mentality is is that it's simply not enough. But on the other hand, this incredible love. Um, Toward their only son, you know, um, it's it's such a it's such a varied package, and I think that I don't think I would have started a memoir with with my parents as central characters without one element missing. You know, if they're just 
you know, the perfect parents don't really even exist in the world, then, then we can't do that. And if they're just monsters, then this would not have been written either. You know, it's, it's the combination that makes it worthwhile for me. Well, you, you dedicated Little Failure to your psychoanalyst, <laughs> and you talk about psychoanalysis in the book. And yeah. you also talk in that section about learning to be silent in the face of your parents' mm-hmm. behavior. Tell us, tell us about those two things and, and how that informed putting the book together for you. Well, psychoanalysis uh, has been very helpful. I know it's much derided these days, and you know we're all just supposed to you know, just take the whole half bottle of Wellbutrin and call it a day. Uh, managed care is all about not, not treating it with talk therapy as much as possible. But psychoanalysis was wonderful for me because, I, you know, if you're an erudite person and, and you like to talk, and some would say, well, if you like to hear yourself talk, you know, and maybe there's some truth to that. It's, it's not entirely a, a non-narcissistic endeavor. But at the same time, it really saved my life in many ways. You know, it, it, it allowed me to take my own work seriously. It allowed me to submit my um, first book to Cheng Ray Lee, who got me a book deal in two weeks, you know. Um, but it also allowed me to, so when, you know, when my mother and my parents, when they would say something like little failure, it, it just burrowed in, and that's what I was for the, for the week, for the two weeks, et cetera. I was, I was a little failure, you know. It was, it was who, I, there was no, my parents were the lawgivers. And, and what I learned was, and was to both be able to love them but not to fear them and not to allow this to, to, to dominate my idea of who I am. So, okay, a little failure, but that becomes the material. You know, that's not who I am. It's what they say. It's a window into how they think. It's a window into their anxiety. I don't have to, I don't have to be the little failure. I, I can just use it for something that hopefully is eye-opening for mm-hmm. others. That, that idea of being silent in the presence of it, Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but when I look at the trajectory of your of your fiction, I feel like there's more of that as as the books go on. When I think of Russian debutantes handbook, it feels like uh, more stream of consciousness and performative. Right. And then when you get up to super sad true love story, just the very structure of having two points of view and giving half the book to someone other than Lenny. Right. And here, uh, even it seems more challenging and daunting task allowing real people to take the stage in your book, people that in other parts of the book are are causing harm and really allowing us to see them in their full dimension. Yeah, well, the final chapter is almost a transcription of of a trip to Russia that I take take with my parents, and they haven't been back in in decades, you know. I I try to go back a lot for my books, but, you know, so I really... That's sort of psychoanalysis there in the sense that I try to shut up as much as possible and not editorialize as much as I usually do in... Just let them speak because they have interesting things to say. And how are they receiving the the book? I don't know. I mean, I sent them a copy. I haven't heard back. Their English isn't isn't perfect, so I think a book like this and other books they've usually waited for the Russian edition to to begin to uh, you know. And what is it? What is it like? For you as a literary figure in Russia, do you go there I do. and read, do readings? <laughs> I do, but um, I wouldn't call myself a literary figure in Russia. I think, you know, like 300 people in Moscow and Petersburg know who I am. Um, reviews have included uh, Balding Traitor Betrays Motherland. That was one one review. They, the satire has not been well received there. Um, one review that I think was very telling was, you know, He's left us, and yet he makes fun of us. You know, you're mm. allowed to, to to be a satirist, but you have to stay and, and live in that muck in order to 
to, to fully be one of them, then it's okay. But to do this from the comfort and safety of your New York apartment is considered a, a, a real betrayal. So if Gogol had moved to New York, then but Gogol did. He left. Uh, he left. Uh, I mean, he lived all over the all over Europe. All of them sort of lived. All over, but in the end, they all came back. You know, oh, interesting. Um, Actually, no, Gogol, I don't even remember where he died. Maybe he did die abroad. But, but you know, there was a – look, I go back, you know, once every year or two years for, for two weeks, and that's, that's the most I can take without wanting to, you know, shoot myself uh, at the airports. And I would imagine you just became a dad for the first yes. time. I would imagine that the process of deciding to become a parent Absolutely. and actually becoming a parent must have – informed the way this book came in, into being? Well, it was, I mean, the two were not unrelated. I felt like I was at the stage of my life where I could have a child and devote the kind of attention, hopefully, that, 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 that you know, that, that he needs um, without, without, I mean, that some of the baggage always continues on, you know. You are on some tiny level a little failure after that kind of life. You can't – you can compartmentalize, but you can never do it completely. But I think I'm finally at the stage where I don't have to give that to my to my son, you know. And so the fact that I wrote this book, that that's sort of – that that happened simultaneously with, with my wife and I deciding to have a kid, that's no coincidence. Hmm. Let's let's talk – you teach at Columbia yeah. and the MFA program, and you were in an MFA program with, with that Chang-Rae Lee – Led. Can can you tell us the story a little bit about about the discovery of you by him and <laughs> and then the process of right. of entering that program already having a book deal that he helped you get? Right. Well, it was very funny. You know, it was um, I was working on Russian debutantes for a long time. I started in senior year at Oberlin, and I just thought it wasn't good. I mean, I just thought it was nonsense. And um, I applied. First, I was rejected by the University of Iowa, which the, you know one of the premier writing programs. I sent them the first couple of chapters, you know, that would later become the book, and that wasn't minimalist enough for them, I guess. But so I ended up. I applied to Cornell, and I got a full ride there, and I was very happy about that because you know at least I could say to my immigrant parents, "I'm going to Cornell." You know, <laughs> at least the the Ivy League name, even though it's for writing and not for law or you know some real profession. You know, I, I thought that would that would. Perked them up, and it did. They were very happy. And then I also, as sort of as a lark, sent a, sent the manuscript to Hunter College, which just started having a writing program. And Chang-Rae Lee was then the director of the program, and he was a huge hero of mine. I, I thought that Native Speaker was this amazing book about the immigrant experience that was very warts and all and, and, and didn't leave out anything. And it was just um, it was just beautiful, a kind of real role model for me. And he, you know, so I got accepted into Hunter, and then he called me into his office, and he said, I know you're getting a full ride at Cornell, and you probably are going to go there, but what if I sent this to my editor? I think it's really, I think it's good enough, you know, to be published right now. And he did, and a couple of weeks later, I go out to dinner with, with an editor from a division of Penguin Putnam, and, uh, and there's my book deal, um, which was shocking. And then I, you know, and then I, I Chang said, "Do you mind? You know, can we? You know, you, you can just graduate from this program. You have this book deal, but you know, it's two years." And so I did. <laughs> and then I would workshop what was already edited material. And you know, a lot of the students were like, "Oh, this is terrible. This is clever by half." You know, and so it gives you a nice kind of look into what an MFA program could be like, which is, you know, writing by committee, where everyone sort of piles in and then reduces it to the common denominator. And when I teach, and I teach at Columbia now, sort of my goal is purely to look for the voice. A strong voice trumps all. And if uh, we're not going to, I mean, craft is important, but 
if students are just going to pile up on somebody who has a lot of talent, then that's not good. And that's something I will take the student aside in conference and say, look, you know, I respect other people's opinions. You should weigh them somewhat. But at the same time, um, if you have something that's screaming inside you, that something must be heard. You can you can tamper it down a little bit. It doesn't have, you know it doesn't have to be shout memory. It can be speak memory, but but, <laughs> but but you should do something with it. And so, was having an, getting an MFA when you already were you know moving your book towards publication still useful in terms of that, or did you wonder, or did you have the question maybe I shouldn't go well, once you got the book deal? You know. It wasn't a lot of work, I'll say that, you know, I mean, because I already did the actual work. Most of the work in the MFA program is the actual writing, and I already had the book, so there wasn't anything I had to do. I just workshopped. I just brought in chapters that were already going to be published to hear people's criticism about them. So that was That must really, have been strange. It was so hilarious, you know. And finally, I, I could tell people it was already time to announce that I was – and people say, oh, it's a great book. You know, people's right. opinions suddenly got a lot better, you know. Well, one of the classes you teach at Columbia is on immigrant fiction. Yeah. Can you tell us uh, what you look for in immigrant, immigrant fiction? Um, and then what are some of the books that you, you continually go back to to teach? Well, they start off with Henry Ross' Call It Sleep, which is still – which and I quote uh, a line from there in Little Failure um, because it's – it's a scene where uh, one of the characters, who's this sheltered Jewish boy from a very difficult family, and he meets his first non-Jewish boy, this Polish guy, and, and, and he's eating ham and launching kites into the sky, and, and, and his name is Leo, the, 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 kid, the Polish kid. And, and he says, geez, Leo wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid. It was this beautiful line where this anxious kid sees that another life is possible. So I, I teach that, certainly. Then I go off to Nabokov's uh, Pnin, which is my favorite novel of his, but more so than Lolita or, or Pale Fire, uh, which are wonderful novels. But there's something very humane about his. Uh, this is a story of um, of a very befuddled Russian professor in a Cornell-like university where, where Nabokov himself taught. And, and it also has a chapter on the Holocaust that I think is one of the most beautiful, poignant chapters on the Holocaust ever written. And then it's it's a collection of, of, of the modern greats, you know, Changri's Native Speaker, Jhumpa Lahiri's Interpreter of Maladies, Juno Diaz's Drown. Uh, and so forth, and um, uh, so it's it's a really wide range of uh, both the past and, and 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 the present. I thought actually of Call It Sleep and Henry Roth and reading Little Failure, and the scene that I remember from it that resonated with Little Failure was his fascination with the forbidden iconography of Christianity and like seeing the telephone right. poles like right. crosses, right. And, crosses yeah. and I. Um, uh. And I think of that with you having to grapple with these two huge worldviews right. and, and their images, whether right. it's Reagan and Thatcher right. Or, right. or Lenin yeah. as the superhero and that fascination with the True. other. But also, you know, don't forget, Judaism was also so omnipresent that, that it was – it was scary there too. I mean, I remember uh, all these rumors. One shouldn't eat a catfish because the bones of the fish form a cross in his lungs, or something like that, in the catfish's lungs. I mean, just complete insanity. But, but at the same time, it was such a. It was so important for you know. I remember, you know, during Passover, you're not supposed to have a drop of bread in the house of leavened bread. And I remember just like a demented dog hunting down every bit of. I mean, you know, you gave me an ideology, and I would just sink my teeth into it. Mm. Um, and then I became this person who does not feel strong nationalism, is not religious. You know, all those years of believing have given birth to just uh, – I mean, I have political convictions, but 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 it's not – I will never march for anything again. I will never take part in an ethnic pride parade. I mean, march on without me, folks, you know. 
I just want to stay home and be who I am. You have some interesting thoughts on the popularity of immigrant fiction in a country that almost doesn't translate any books into, we don't. into English from other countries. Right. Can, can you tell us about that weird juxtaposition of it's phenomenon? Weird. I mean, you know, countries like Germany translate half their works in France, Spain, Italy, and uh, but we translate 1% or 2% or less or more. No, I think 2% is about the right number. It's almost like our – but those countries don't have the same kind of immigrant literature tradition that we do. Obviously, we have more immigrants, but we also have much more much more well-assimilated immigrants in a country like Germany does with its Turkish population, for example. So it's almost like immigrants are our you know, gateway to, to foreign cultures. We almost need somebody who – who knows our ways and byways to translate the foreignness for us, and whereas you know, translated authors are just too furry and smelly for us to, to sink our teeth into. So now that you've done this memoir, you've dug deep into your own personal narrative. Where do you go from here, Gary Steingart? <laughs> I'm going to Disneyland. Um, <laughs> Well, I am going to Disneyland in the sense that I want to write a, a non-immigrant character or maybe the child of immigrants, but not maybe not focusing on Russia, I think. I'm not sure, but definitely not a not, – not I don't want to do a male character. I want to have, I want to have a heroine who's, you know, um, in, in, in super sad. As you mentioned, there was a, my typical Russian Jewish, you know, guy with baggage. But there was also a, a 24-year-old Korean-American woman, Eunice Park. And I loved writing her lines. I mean, I think I just enjoyed the heck out of that. And um, – I'd love to do a full-length novel with with a female protagonist. I think that would be wonderful. So it's you know this this memoir does allow me to move forward. Now the, the caveat here is this: you know Philip Roth, who's one of my favorite novelists, um, he wrote when good, she was good. When she was good. After you know, the, first he wrote Goodbye Columbus and, and other stuff, and, and there was a huge outraged by the Jewish community. Rabbis were going to burn him at the stake. And then he went into this kind of social realism with these, you know, these women who weren't Jewish in the Midwest and stuff like that. And as brilliant as he is, though, that's not the work that I and others, I think, enjoy the most. Um, so I don't want to do this out of fear that I've, you know, uh, that I've taken this too far, but rather I, I want to see the range that I can get away with. And I think I also want, if this book has given me more empathy for my parents and, and other people in my life, I also want to develop empathy for people outside of my orbit and see what that feels like. Well, I look forward to it. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on Between the Covers today, Gary. Thank you. Great, great pleasure. We're talking today with Gary Steingart, the author of Little Failure, a memoir. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.